0: chapter 12 verses 14 through 29 strive with peace with everyone strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal For you know that afterwards, when he decided to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will you escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. Excuse me. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for the receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence in all, for our God is a consuming fire." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, David. Uh, Boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head on out to Story Keepers now. kids head out. Let me uh, pray and ask God to help us as we think about uh, this passage today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've walked with us through this uh, sermon that is the book of Hebrews, For what we've uh, learned already about how Jesus brings all that is better. And again, we uh, hear that again today in what David has just read. We want to understand it well so that we can apply it well, so that we can live well this coming week. So help us, no matter what uh, point in our journey of faith we're at, may, may this time be time where we know that the living God is speaking to us because we have opened up his word. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1917, soon after the end of the First World War, two young girls, Elsie, age 16 and Francis, age nine, were playing in a, by a small river by their home in their village in North Yorkshire in England. And on this occasion, the two cousins had taken Elsie's father's camera with them. Her father was an amateur photographer in photography's earliest days. He even had his own dark room back then. But to their complete astonishment, uh, the photographs those two girls took that day would bring them international fame and attention for the rest of their lives. They had taken the first ever photographs of fairies, what became known as the Cottingley Fairies. And the photos caused a sensation. They gripped everyone from Harry Houdini to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, and many others around the world. Photography experts examined them and declared them to be genuine. Thousands of people were convinced. Here, at last, was proof of what everyone was convinced was true, but that they'd never seen that fairies existed. Only they didn't, at least certainly not in this case. Many years later, in 1983, the two cousins who were still alive at that point admitted that the photos were fakes. They had copied images from a child's picture book. They had stuck them on cardboard cutouts and propped them up with hat pins. Two years on from that point, 1985, they said, They had been too embarrassed to admit what they had done because they had fooled even the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Then Frances said something in the interview that was very telling. She said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun on a summer afternoon and I cannot understand to this day why they were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. that's an accusation that today many people make of christians that christianity is only believed by those who want to be taken in who are gullible who want to believe in the unbelievable in the invisible your friends and mine who aren't christians will ask us for proof for tangible visible evidence that what we claim or what the bible claims is irrefutably true But as we've seen in recent weeks in Hebrews, that's not the kind of evidence that we're given for Christianity. A couple of weeks ago, we read these words at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. As we saw there, faith has a future certainty to it, a visual certainty to it, but it's still about something in the future that is unseen, and therefore it is faith. And here in the second half of chapter 12 of Hebrews that David just read for us, the preacher is going to remind us that our hope as Christians does lie in the unseen, not the seen. It lies with the invisible, not the visible. But while it is invisible and while it is unseen, it is real. So here's today's sermon in a sentence, reality lies in the unseen, which once seen changes everything. We're going to think about this as we continue uh, to consider the dimensions of the normal Christian life that we began to look at last week at the first half of chapter 12. And so today, here's what we're going to see, that in the normal Christian life, firstly, we live for the long term, not the immediate. Secondly, we live out future reality in the present. And thirdly, we listen to God and gratefully worship him. Reality lies in the unseen which, once seen, changes everything. So first, in the normal Christian life, we live for the long term, not the immediate. Look again at verses 14 to 17. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now these verses may seem somewhat random at this point, but what I think holds them together is this need in the normal Christian life as we run this race laid out for us in chapter 12, the need to live for the long-term, not for the immediate, which in turn changes how we live in the immediate, in the present. And If we were to reformulate the exhortations of these verses positively, I think they give us commands to make effort in four areas. First of all, make every effort to live at peace with all people. The preacher has acknowledged earlier in this chapter, if you may recall from last week, that as Christians, like Jesus, we will face opposition. From others because of our faith in Jesus, but he reminds us here that whatever our differences in belief and practice from our neighbors, from our co-workers, from family members, or from whoever else, we are to seek to cultivate a peaceful relationship with everyone. And if that's not a wise and helpful word for all of us, particularly perhaps those of us who use social media, I don't know what it is, make every effort to live at peace with all people. And guess what, all means all. Secondly, make every effort to be holy. I think there's probably a connection between this and the previous one, that in a sense you'll never be able to live at peace with all other people around you if you're, if you're trying to live at peace with your own sin. And that's worth all of us considering in our own personal lives, that if I'm constantly in conflict with other people, if I'm antagonistic towards others, Is there some sin in my own life that needs addressed? But look at the reason the preacher gives for this command. Strive for holiness because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now the preacher does not mean here that we earn our way to heaven through holiness, but rather that if you love Jesus, holiness will be the result of your commitment to him. Put another way, holiness is not the condition of salvation, But it is the consequence of salvation. So it's not an optional extra for us in the Christian life. There are many, many great books on holiness in the Christian life. One of the most influential in my own life, uh, particularly as a young Christian, was the the classic by the 19th century English bishop J.C. Ryle entitled simply Holiness. Ryle writes a lot of great stuff in that book, but one of the things he says is suppose uh, for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. Given that heaven, by definition, is a holy place, and as we sang in our first hymn, God by definition is a holy God, what would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? Who would you sit with? Whose company would you enjoy? Their pleasures are not your pleasures, their tastes are not your tastes, Ryle says, their their character not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you've not strived to be holy on earth? Now the challenge, of course, for us with this is to work out what striving for holiness actually look like in our lives? And here we're helped by another great book on holiness, one that I know some of you who read Read it, appreciated it more than others. I'm not going to mention any names, but he's sitting close to me at the front. That's Kevin DeYoung's book on holiness, one of John Belay's favorite books ever. Um, Anyway, I'm still going to quote it. Listen to how DeYoung suggests that we grow in holiness. He says, holiness is the sum of a million little things. Holiness is the sum of a million little things, the avoidance of little evils and little foibles, the setting aside of little bits of worldliness and little acts of compromise, the putting to death of little inconsistencies and little indiscretions, the attention to little duties and little dealings, the hard work of little self-denials and little self-restraints, the cultivation of little benevolences and little forbearances. Are you trustworthy? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you joyful? Do you love? These qualities worked out in all the little things of life determine whether you are blight or blessings to everyone around you, whether you are an ugly spiritual store or growing up into a good-looking holy Christian, end quote. Holiness is the sum of a million little things that we need to be constantly working on. So make every effort to be holy. Thirdly, make every effort to cultivate the grace of God. You and I do not drift into this kind of holiness. It takes effort. Preacher here is probably alluding here again to the Israelites in the wilderness, who failed to obtain the grace of God and so fell short of God's promised rest. And that's a reminder to us that if we fail to obtain the grace of God, we will fall short of God's promised rest for us, which is heaven. When he mentions here a root of bitterness, the preacher is actually alluding to Deuteronomy 29, where that phrase is used, where such a bitter root is the consequence of idolatry, running away from God, failing to listen to and obey God's word. And so he says to resist such temptation, we have to strive to cultivate this grace of God in our lives. And then fourthly, make every effort to be morally responsible. Preacher references here the Old Testament character Esau as exhibit number one of how not to live in the old testament esau is is bathed in a rather unfavorable light but that's nothing actually compared to what happens to him in later jewish tradition he became a symbol for just about everything that can go wrong with a human being so the preacher says here he was sexually immoral and unholy but the main reason that the preacher brings esau up here is because of his short-sighted action of selling his birthright for a single meal, which you read about in Genesis 25. That if the normal Christian life involves living for the long-term rather than the immediate, Esau was the exact opposite. He represents here those who would throw away their rich inheritance in Christ, an inheritance that the apostle Peter tells us is, is, can never spoil or rust or fade, and gives that up for immediate physical pleasure. So the preacher here is warning us of the foolishness and the short-sightedness of abandoning our faith in order to get something in the immediate, for immediate gratification. To do so is, is, is the equivalent of selling your soul for a bowl of soup. So he says, instead, make every effort to be morally responsible because in the normal Christian life, we live for the long term, not for the immediate. Now, to make sure they understand what is at stake here and what they will be missing if they go the route of an Esau, the preacher, as it were, now shares his screen in order to give the congregation in the next section of the sermon a glimpse of the sights ahead, a preview of the coming attractions, the coming attractions that are actually something already for Christians of a present reality. So we come to our second point, that in the normal Christian life, We live out future reality already in the present. Look at verses 18 to 24 again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at at the annual gathering of of Christian University students in Ireland, and on the Friday evening, I was brought up on stage to introduce myself, after which they told me they had a few other questions to ask to help everybody get to know the speaker a bit better. But they weren't the normal sorts of questions. They were would-you-rather type questions, like these. Would you rather be attacked by 10 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? (laughs) Would you rather look like a fish or smell like a fish? Those aren't exactly the easiest questions to answer. But what about this one? Would you rather get $10 million or a slap on the face? Well, that's a bit more of a no-brainer, right? And the preacher here is trying to present his listeners with that sort of no-brainer. A tale of two mountains and essentially asks them, would you rather have Mount Sinai and the mountain of fear or Mount Zion, the mountain of joy? Vision of two mountains, one of doom, one of deliverance, was not intended to set up some kind of crisis of decision. This kind of, oh, I don't know, you know, they both look equally attractive. No, this this would you rather is meant to be a complete no brainer. And as such, he, in a sense now, is giving us the climax of the book because in these two mountains encapsulates basically the choice that he's been presenting throughout the whole sermon. The preacher lays out this stark contrast between uh, two comings with a parallel seven-point description of Mount Sinai, what it represented, Mount Zion, what it represents. It's not a one-to-one correspondence between the two seven-point lists, rather it's just One list is all dread, and one list is all joy. Preacher draws on passages like Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4 to spell out the terrors of Mount Sinai. It's an awe-filled scene. Fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, trumpet, a voice from heaven. No one was enjoying this. No one was saying, Wow, that's the voice of God speaking to us. Encore, encore. They begged for it to stop. Even Moses trembled with fear. And the preacher says to these Christians, This is not what you have come to. You have not come to this. In other words, as he's pointed out over and over again in this sermon, Sinai is now obsolete. You may be wanting to return to it to try to cling to the religion of Sinai, but it's been fulfilled by Christ. It's been replaced categorically by something far, far better. he says, here's what's better. It's what you have already come to. It's what theologians call the already, but not yet. It's in heaven, but you're already participants. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, Mount Zion was the hill in Jerusalem that King David had made, the center of his kingdom, So he brought the Ark of the Covenant there, therefore became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God, but now the preacher declares under the new covenant it refers to more than the reign of David in an earthly city. In Christ, we've now come to the true Mount Zion, the heavenly reality to which the earthly pointed. What the preacher refers to here as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, And that instead of Sinai's awful terror and darkness and gloom, Zion is pulsating with awe-inspiring worship and joy and love. So here you have these countless angels in festal gathering. Why festal? Because this is a party. And here we join with fellow believers from every age. The assembly of the firstborn, he says. That is, we're a society of eldest brothers Eldest sons of God. There are no second or third or fourth sons or daughters in in the church because we've all been perfected and we all together receive this massive, beautiful inheritance. We've all come to God, the judge of all, and then almost as if he's saving the best till the last, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's reference to Genesis 4, where after the murder by his brother, Abel's blood cries out for justice, for judgment. If any of you read the post of David French, you may have seen this morning. He's an excellent piece on the ongoing relevance of such cries for justice from the unjust shedding of blood. But, he, but here the preacher's reminding us that Jesus' blood cries out an even better word than Abel's, a word calling for God's forgiveness and a word that is granted to all who trust in him. So here's the question this section raises. Why? Why was it not a no-brainer for the preacher's audience to stick with all that is found at Mount Zion, but rather want to go back to Sinai? We've already noted before that the temptation to go back to was in part to escape the suffering and persecution they were facing as Christians. But here's perhaps another reason set up by this contrast, that Sinai was what we could call sensible. Our son Duncan's girlfriend, Alice, is also in theater and over the Easter weekend, she performed in a Zoom production of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. All the actors and actresses were in different locations. It really was quite a feat to to pull that off, but pull it off they did. But the title of that novel, Sense and Sensibility, was a play on two meanings of the word. Because the word sensible first appeared late in the 14th century with the meaning of something that was capable of sensation, of feeling, what we would probably now refer to more as sensitive. But sensible could also refer to something easily understood, which led to it gaining the meaning of of reasonable or logical which is how we tend to use the term today. But the attraction, if we can say that, of Sinai and all that it involved was that it was sensible in the first sense of that word. It could be sensed through sight and touch and hearing and so on. And for the preacher's audience, as for us, we're tempted to think that if something is not sensible in the old sense of the word, it's not real. That's why, as I said at the beginning, people try to suggest that Christianity can't be true, can't be real. It's only believed by those who want to be taken in, like by the fairies, because it can't be sensed, it can't be seen, it can't be touched. It explains why the vast majority of religions in our world compete for our attention through The physical, that is its rituals and its priests and its altars and its traditions. It's why when Christianity first arose in the world, no one would call it a religion. It was called the anti-religion. The Romans for 200 years called the Christians atheists because Christianity didn't have the normal apparatus of of a religion, all the baggage. It couldn't be called a religion, therefore. Old Testament religion, every other religion is sensible in the sense that it can be sensed. And that was the one disadvantage, if I could use that word, that the new, test, new covenant had in comparison with the old, that after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, there's nothing to see. It's insensible. But the preacher says, that doesn't mean it's not real. And actually, actually, he says, ironically, it's, it's, it's the only thing that is real. Reality lies in the unseen, which one seen changes everything. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and to the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's saying that to us today, right now. I mean, some of you have been here over the last six to nine months. On Sunday mornings when there were barely, you know, a dozen people here. Trying to sing through masks, socially distance. I mean, from the world's perspective, it looked weak and hopeless, maybe even pathetic. And the preacher says, you know, they're judging completely wrongly. They're judging by what's going, what's going on here by the wrong measure, by the sensible. Because every Sunday, even right now, we're joining with countless festive angels. We're joining with a fellowship of believers from every age. We're joining with God and with Jesus. That's the reality, even right now. Because ultimately, of course, it's Jesus who's made this all real, who entered into human history and who lived in time and space, who shed his blood on a cross, purchasing for us forgiveness and a hope-filled reality. It's Jesus who's convinced us that this is no fairy tale, that this is what is real. And once you and I see that, it changes everything. So then lastly, in the normal Christian life we listen to God and we gratefully worship him. Verses 25 to 29. See that you did not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One mistake that we can make reading a passage like this is to think that the God of Mount Sinai was somehow different to the God of Mount Zion. That would be a big mistake. Because he's the same God. As, he, as the preacher says in the very last verse here, our God is, is a consuming fire still today. But because, as we'll sing in the song that we'll sing right after the sermon, because Jesus has hushed the law's loud thunder by fulfilling its demands, through Jesus now we, we can relate to this God differently. However, as the preacher concludes this section, he wants us to be clear that Mount Zion, coming to Mount Zion does not mean that God no longer cares about our holy living or says that his commands no longer matter. He does care and they do matter, which is why this sermon, this book of Hebrews is so filled with exhortations and warnings. And here's another warning. Don't refuse God as he speaks. Don't ignore his words because god still judges those who reject him in other words this comparison between mount sinai and mount zion is not just this mere matter of preference that has no consequences it's a matter of life and death it's a matter of going the right way or going the wrong way michael kruger in his hot off the press new commentary on hebrews uh, references a football story I wasn't familiar with, but which I'm guessing some of you will know well. in, in October, 1964, one of the most amazing football plays ever happened. Jim Marshall made a 66 yard run that has gone down in the record books, recovered a fumble, ran the ball for 66 yards into the end zone. Everything seemed great until he realized that the guys who were celebrating were the guys on the other team because he'd picked up the ball and run the wrong way into his own end zone. People chasing him were his own teammates trying to tackle him. The preacher would consider that a a pretty good picture of someone running in the opposite direction to Mount Zion. It's the total wrong way. And for Jim Marshall, it only cost his team a safety. But for the preacher's audience and for us to run the wrong way... Will cost us everything it is a matter of life and death it's a matter of life and death because while the gospel brings life and forgiveness and joy and hope and all the things we celebrate sunday by sunday for those who trust in jesus it does not remove the consequence of judgment for those who turn away from him the preacher here towards the end quotes the old testament prophet haggai to remind us that just as god shook the earth with his voice at sinai a day was coming when he would shake the entire world again. But there actually would be two such shaking days. It's gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew reports that as Jesus breathed his last, hanging on the cross, the curtain temple, the temple, the curtain in the temple split from top to bottom, the earth shook, and the rocks were split. God's judgment was shaking the earth on that day, but that judgment Fell only on his son who was dying in the place of all who put their trust in him. He was shaken so that we don't have to be. But there still remains a day, one more day of shaking, and that is the day when Jesus will return in judgment. And for those who cannot be shaken because Jesus has already been shaken in our place, there is nothing to fear about that day because ours now is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But for all, who have not trusted in Jesus there remains a shaking there remains a removal as they come face to face with the God who is still a consuming fire the preacher says do not refuse him who is speaking and warning you of that day that it's not too late to trust in Jesus and still come to mount zion for those who have come to mount zion the preacher exhorts us let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That in the normal Christian life, we continually, gratefully worship God. Just imagine what our lives, everyday lives might look like if we lived out of the conviction that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Ruled by Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Reality lies in the unseen, which once seen changes everything. And so as we close, let me just add this, let us, the end of chapter 12, to those we've already seen in Hebrews as a reminder of what a changed everything starts to look like. Here's the reality into which we are invited today. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When you and I truly believe that the overarching reality that envelops everything going on in our lives, the overarching reality is the grace and goodness of God, then gratitude is our response. This is no fairy tale, this is reality reality that lies in the unseen which once seen and perceived and lived changes everything let's pray lord jesus we thank you for your blood of the new covenant that has made it possible for us to have an unseen reality that we look forward to but which we participate in already even here today together What a great future you have given to us. What a great present you have given to us. But we pray that you would give us the faith that we need to keep looking to you. We pray that we would grow in holiness as a sign of that faith. And we pray that you would keep reminding us of these truths that we've considered this morning. Keep reminding us of them later today and through this week so that our lives would be shaped the way you want them to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.